Hey there, thanks for checking out the Jacob's Well podcast. This week we're going to continue on on our series called Seven. We're going to be looking at a church that Jesus is walking among and speaking to called Ephesus. And Ephesus has a problem, and as we unpack this message, um, we're going to see that uh, it's a problem that's all too common in our lives and our churches today. Hope you enjoy it, and uh, hope you're able to find a next step that you can take this day to become more like Jesus. When he first became a follower of Jesus, he was just so in love with God. He was amazed and he was humbled. He was just remarkably just blown away that God had included him in this incredible story. He was humbled by forgiveness. He was full of grace. He found it natural for him to just love people because he had been loved so very much. Now, because he loved God so much, he started doing what followers of Christ do. He studied the scriptures, and and it soon became clear for those who were around him that he kind of had a gift with the scriptures. He could study it, and he could understand it, and he could read books about it, and understand even deep and profound things, and and he could talk about it. And and as he did, he began to teach, and as he began to teach, people became kind of impressed, and he kind of became impressed with himself. And he became the kind of Christian that became very concerned with truth. We need to be people of the truth. And, and more and more he talked about truth, and less and less he talked about love. He became a person who understood good theology and bad theology, became kind of an expert in who had the right theology and, and who had the wrong theology, and very often he was right about those kinds of things. He was the kind of person who enjoyed getting in theological debates and, 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 and pointing out the arguments that were weak in other people, and, and, and eventually it became not about having a conversation so everyone could grow to learn more about God. It became about winning the argument. And more and more, the the person who at once had been so in love with who Jesus was became a person whose heart had gone cold. He he didn't have bad theology. He took the Bible seriously, took God very seriously, but also took himself very seriously. The name of that person was Paul. It was me. Anybody else a recovering legalist? No, I'm not going to raise my hand for that. (laughs) You know, the person who, who, who was very much into the truth, very much into the Bible and proper theology and helping set people straight in their theology. Well, I went through a season in my life where that was very, very true of me. Now, this last week, we started a series called Seven, and, and this is a study of the first three books of the book of the Revelation, and specifically letters that are written to seven specific churches. Now, last week, we started by looking at the person who is speaking to the churches. We saw this incredible picture from Revelation chapter 1 of the glorified Jesus. And for some of us, it was a Jesus that we hadn't talked about in a long time, or maybe for some of us, it's a Jesus we've never seen, because we maybe are used to Jesus who's our friend, Jesus who's our buddy, Jesus who was the guy who walked around on earth, but this was the Jesus who is glorified. The first time, a lot of people didn't notice Jesus came the first time it came when he comes back 
every eye will see him, even those that pierced him. Every ear will hear him because his voice is like a mighty water. His glory will be on such display that we won't be able to look into his face because he'll just be so glorious. And yet, in spite of him coming in all this glory, he still reaches out his hand and speaks to John, the author of the book of Revelation, and says, do not be afraid. And, and, and this this. Jesus comes, and he comes with a a message. And many times the message is hidden in different kinds of symbolism. For instance, he describes himself as the one who holds in his hand seven stars. And he's described as the one who walks among lampstands. But he explains what these symbols are. He says, no, these seven stars are seven angels, or seven messengers that I'm going to send to my churches. And these seven lampstands represent my churches. And it was a symbol. Symbolic way of Jesus saying that as Jesus, as the glorified Jesus, I walk among my church and I have something to say to my churches. And that to be a healthy church, to be a healthy place, we've got to be the kind of people, the kind of church that listens to the Jesus who walks among us. That is aware that at this moment, in this worship experience, Jesus is here and he has something to say to us. Now, he's going to say this to us uh, by speaking to seven churches. Now, what we need to understand about these seven churches are that these are seven historical churches. So, John, the author of the book of the Revelation, the one who received the Revelation, writes to these seven historical churches. But we also need to understand that these seven churches are an example of a kind of church that can show up throughout human history. In fact, there there are examples of what we should be and what we shouldn't be in each one of these churches. So, So what we need to do is understand the message that's spoken to these churches and then apply it to ourselves and apply it to our church today. And as I've studied it, I've been kind of blown away by how relevant the messages are, the warnings are to these seven churches, even to the church of Jesus Christ today in general, and to Jacob's well specifically. Now, now to help you kind of understand this, and in the hope that you'll do some studying in these first three chapters yourself, I want you to see that for every one of these churches, there's a pattern that the message follows. There's a, a kind of formula that's followed. When you understand the formula, you can start picking this apart and understand it just really powerfully and deeply. So, for every one of the churches, uh, the formula looks like this. It starts with a revelation about the Lamb. That is to say, Jesus says something about himself that's going to be specifically important to that church and the message that that church needs to hear. That once again, it's just a reminder, church, remember who's talking to you and remember just how incredible he actually is. The second thing you get is a word of encouragement that Jesus says, one of his messages, hey, you're doing this right, and you're doing this right, and you're doing this right, and and I commend you for this. Now, the one thing that's interesting about that is that of the seven churches, there's only one that does not receive a word of encouragement. There's only one that doesn't get a, hey, you're doing this all right. And if I can just say it, it probably is the church, the church historically, that is most like the church in America today. And so when we get to that one, we will want to pay special attention to it. It'll be in several weeks. Now, the third thing you see is a word of correction. Now, now let me just be really clear about this. This is not nitpicky little thing. You know, you didn't pick up your room. 
you know, you did a bad thing, you missed church. It's not that kind of thing. The word of corrections that are going to come to these churches, listen now, they're, they're spiritual issues, and they are spiritual life and death issues. That is to say that if these churches don't deal with these words of correction, they're, they're going to cease to exist as churches. They're going to be find themselves just knocked into a tailspin. They're going to find that their lampstand is actually going to be taken away. Now, now, the next thing you see in this pattern uh, is that there is a word of warning. That is to say that once the correction is given, if you don't do this, this is what you should expect. And understand that one of the things you understand about the Bible is the Bible is a book of warning. That there's all kinds of warnings in this book. And, and the wise person understands that to warn someone is a loving thing. If you're going to touch a hot stove, you say... Stove is hot, dummy, don't touch it. You say it better than that, but you know what I'm talking about. If someone's about to walk in the traffic, you warn them. If someone's about to make a bad mistake in a relationship and you have a relationship with them, you warn them. And so this is a book of warnings and they're loving warnings. And the next thing is that there for each church is an admonition to listen and each church gets the same admonition. And listen to what it says. It says, to the one who has ears, let him listen and hear what the Spirit would say to the Spirit. To the, to, to, to the churches. And, and so the understanding is, is that the Spirit is saying something and we need to be receptive, not just physically hearing it, but actually actively listening to it. We'll talk more about that here in just a couple minutes. The last thing you see is a promise for reward. Listen now, to the one who overcomes. One of the big themes in the book of Revelations is that the reward, the, the, the one who is shown to be a true follower of Christ is not the one who begins strong, but the one who ends strong. The one who endures to the end. The one who goes through things and overcomes. The one whose faith is tested under incredible pressure. Instead of it falling apart, it actually grows and blossoms. And so this is a, a, a word of promise. And the promises are mind-blowing. They're, they're just stunning what God offers us. Indeed, if we become aware of what God is offering us in time and eternity and what we settle for here on earth, we are just, we just gotta, just why would I settle for this when God offers me these incredible promises? So this is the pattern that's following. You're gonna see this with every one of these seven churches. Now the first church that we're gonna talk about today is the church of Ephesus. It is, a, uh, it is a church that we actually know the most about Ephesus than any other church. The city of Ephesus is the largest city. It's the capital city in the region. And so it's a city of art and a city of culture. It is a city of education. And it is a city of very wealthy people. It's a city that would have been very confident in itself. And it actually might have looked at some of these other churches as kind of backwards churches or country churches. Having said that, the Ephesian church was probably the church that sent people out to start all these other churches. Now, we know a lot about the Ephesians church because it's mentioned at great length in the book of Acts, and it also has an entire New Testament book to it. The book of Ephesians was written to the church at Ephesus. And there are several things you need to understand. First of all, this church always had great leadership. It was a church that was started by the Apostle Paul, the guy who wrote, like, most of the New Testament. And, and they had leaders like Timothy. They had leaders like this couple called Priscilla and Aquila, who are famous in the Bible. And so they got started really strong. And, and, and the thing you need to understand is that this church was known for things. It was known for a church that was faithful and full of love. 
It was faithful and full of love. When you read about the church in Ephesus, you'll read in the book of Acts that when the church landed there, the power of God so fell on this church, it grew so fast, so many people were coming to Christ, that the idol makers in the town became threatened, and so they became persecuted because the people who sold idols were going out of business. And so this is a church that stayed faithful under persecution. When the Jewish uh, authorities tried to, tried to shut down the church, they stayed faithful under persecution and difficulties. When, when their leaders were scattered, they stayed faithful. And they stayed faithful, not just you know, uh, uh, to the things we're supposed to do, but they were faithful in love. It was a church that was known for love. Listen to what the Apostle Paul wrote to the Ephesians in chapter 1, verse 15 of the book of Ephesians. He says, For this reason, because I heard of your faith, your faithfulness, your faith, in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, he said, I do not cease to give thanks to you, remembering your prayers. And so historically, this has been a church that has been faithful and known by love. Indeed, in the book of Ephesians, the apostle Paul writes about love 14 times. He says things like, you need to bear one another in love. You need to be rooted and established in love. He says things like, you need to speak the truth, but you need to do it in love. And so this was a church that was all about love. They loved God. They loved each other. They loved people who didn't know about God. Their life was typified by love. Now, this was the story when the church of Ephesus was started. It was probably started somewhere between 40 AD and and maybe 60 AD, somewhere in there. But the book of the Revelations was probably written later, maybe perhaps 80 or 90 AD, so that something happened in that 30-year period. Something changed with this church. And and so what we see is the angel or the messenger being given now the responsibility to speak to every one of these churches. And the first church that receives the first message is the church of Ephesus. And we read about it this way. The first you see, the revelation about the lamb. It says, to the angel of the church at Ephesus write... So the, to the messenger at the church of a- Ephesus write. This is the message you're supposed to give because the Greek word for angel is actually uh, angelos. It means to message or to proclaim. He says, so this is the message. And who's giving it? Well, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the lampstands. And so he's already been identified in chapter 1 by that name so they understand that this is Jesus who is talking to him, And specifically... The Jesus who is the giver of the message. Now, what we're going to see is that one of the problems in in Ephesus is that they're puffed up with their knowledge. And so he says, listen, this is the one who you think you know so much about. Well, he's got a message for you, Ephesus, and he is walking among you. Let's just take a step back for a minute and bring this home to you and me. Are you consciously aware at this moment that Jesus is here? I mean, he's here. And and let me ask you this question. Tonight, did you come here expecting Jesus to say something to you? Did you have ears that were ready to say, okay, Jesus, I don't know what you're going to say to me. I don't know if you're going to tell me you love me. I don't know if you're going to encourage me. I don't know if you have a word of correction for me. Jesus, I don't know if there's something you want me to do or something you want me to stop. Jesus, I don't know if there's something you want to tell me that I'm supposed to encourage someone else in, but Jesus, I just expect you regularly routine in my life through the word of God, through prayer, 
to be speaking to me. Maybe, Jesus, there's something that you want to say to our church, and so you're going to say it to 10 or 20 people, and, and it's going to become clear that this is something God is saying to the people of God. And, and so when we understand that Jesus walks among us, and every week when we come here, he is speaking, it just changes. Instead of just rolling in a little late, <sighs> I hope this music's good. hope Paul's got something to say. You know, instead of that, it's I'm here attentive, expecting a word from God. And so it starts with the revelation of the Lamb. And the revelation here is the one who walks among us, the one who is speaking. Second thing here we see is a word of encouragement. And, and he has a lot to say that's right about Ephesians. Look what it says. He says, I know your deeds. You're doing the right things. You're doing a lot Right. He says, your hard work and your perseverance. You guys have worked hard, you have served, and you have stuck with, you've gone through some difficult times, some persecutions. He says, I know you can't tolerate wicked men. He says, you call right, right, and wrong, wrong. You are about truth. You've got it straight. And when someone's wicked, you call them out. You're that kind of take a stand, right kind of person. You are right about that. He says, he says I see that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and he will found them false. He said, you've had some people come to your environments, and they've said, you know, I'm an apostle from God, I'm an apostle from God. And, and why this is important is that the original apostles, so the original 12 apostles, those were the guys who were the foundation. They got their theology straight from Jesus, and they were the ones primarily who wrote the Bible. And so now that some of them have started to die off, because John, who's writing the book of Revelations, is probably the last one, well, these other people are coming and saying, oh, we got a new revelation. We got something else. God told me to say this. And he said, you have tested them with the the message and the theology and the doctrine that you have gotten originally from the apostles. And you have found their teaching to be worldly. You found it to be right. And so they've got good doctrine. They're actually impressively committed to the truth. He goes on to say, you have persevered and you have endured hardships in my name. You've gone through some hard things. You've faced persecution. You've faced loss. You've done it in my name. You've been tested. And look at this. He says, you have not grown weary. That is to say, you've not given up. You've not gotten to that point where you say, you know what? I I just can't do this anymore. And so there's so much right about what this church is doing. And, and, And if you notice, most of it is about doing the right thing expecting people to do the right thing, having the right beliefs, having the right theology, having the right doctrine. And so they're doing a ton right. But then you see the word of correction. He says, yet, I have this against you. So this is Jesus. He says, you have forsaken your first love. You have forsaken your first love. So again, remember, this is Ephesian, the church known for faithfulness, which they get commended for, and for love, which somehow or another has been forsaken. He says, remember the heights from which you have fallen. He says, repent and do the things you did at first. And so this is a call to return to first love. This is a call to understand this very simple point. And, and if we lose this, we lose everything is that you can be right about your doctrine. You can be right about who you endorse and who you don't endorse. You can be right about going through hard things. But if you have lost love, you've lost everything. You know, when I was going through that point where I was just so super legalistic and, and I, I just was, was arguing, um, it, it was this, this incredible time where, where, where I just thought I knew so much. What I found was that knowledge was puffing me up. 
And, and when I remember, I distinctly remember when I read in the Bible that knowledge puffs up and I felt the conviction of the Spirit. And, and knowledge puffs up, but love, he says, builds up. When we go back to Ephesians and we read Apostle Paul's admonition to the Ephesians when it was a young church, he says, you got to speak the truth in love. You don't want to go to the experience, the extreme where you don't care about what you believe. You don't have good doctrine. You put up with people you ought not put up with. You call things that are evil good. Don't do any of that. He said, but when you speak that truth of love, do it. when you speak that truth, speak it in love. Speak it in a way where your goal is not to win the argument, but your goal is, is to draw a person to Christ. You see, there are all kinds of ways we can forsake our first love. There's, there's two ways primarily. The first way is by, by loving things other than God. It's one of the problems we're going to see in many of the churches in the book of the Revelation. It's good old-fashioned idolatry. It's that after following Christ for a while and after going through some hardships, maybe we set our affections on another thing. It can be obvious things. It can be wealth. It can be fame. It can be reputation. It can be, you know, our church is more important than this church or more impressive than this church. It can be a situation, I've seen this so many times with young Christians, that they'll, they'll start following Christ, become passionate with Christ, and all of a sudden they'll start dating someone. And, and sometimes I'll actually go to them. If, if I have a relationship with a friendship, I says, tell me about this person. And they'll tell me, says, really great person, really this and awesome. I said, do they know Jesus? Oh, they go to church. Okay, so does the devil. Do they, do they, do they love Jesus? I, I don't know. I'm talking to him. I've invited him to church. We haven't really talked about it. Ho, 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 ho. Haven't even talked about it. And then, then conversations get awkward, and sometimes they'll lean into it. Other times they'll kind of get upset, and they'll, they'll go the other way. And after a while, this person, if they pursue that relation with a person who's maybe not a bad person, but a person who doesn't have Christ in their life, all of a sudden, because they're moving towards that person, they can't really move towards that person more move towards Christ. And so pretty soon they're not coming to Bible study, and then all of a sudden they're not coming to church. And then when they do come to church, they don't seem to be getting much out of it. And, and all of a sudden, their love grows cold because they've had some other thing come in their life. You see, here's the thing you need to understand about making anything the source of your affection, making everything that which you love above God, is that that idol, any idol, any God, any false God other than the true God is a cruel God. It will leave you unsatisfied. It will leave you used up. It will leave you, you bitter and angry and it will harden your heart and it will cause you to have your love grow cold. And, and so this thing that you, you're passionately pursuing as a source of something I really want, I'm living for, I love, that'll make your love grow cold. It'll cause you to forsake your first love. Now, now the second thing that can happen, not only can your, your, you forsake your first love by loving the wrong thing, you can also forsake your first love by simply letting your love grow cold. You see, love is not something that just is going to be naturally there. Love is something you have to keep choosing to do. Love is something that you have to, to rediscover and find a perspective on. So you could be like the church at Ephesus. You become filled of spiritual pride. You're a person, you know, I know the Bible. I've been around church for a long time. Look at the things I know. Look at the expert. I'm a person who stands for truth. And very often when we say we stand for truth, we start becoming judgmental of other people. We may say, I know church history, you know, and, 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 and we're just an impressive church. You wonder if that didn't happen with the church at Ephesus, that they could say, you know, we got started by the Apostle Paul. 
We have this incredible history. You know, we're Ephesus. And because of that, they started becoming spiritually puffed up. And, and when you start becoming spiritually puffed up, that principle, that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up, starts to kick in in the most powerful way. You know, something's about to happen here uh, in the next two years. You don't even realize this or not, but our church is going to turn 20 years old. Isn't that amazing? I'm too young to be that old. So I don't know what happened. I blinked, and here we are. I was going to be 20 years old. And, and here's something you may not realize about churches that are 20 years old. It, it is the case that over 90% of churches that grow past 20 years old have the best times, the most significant impact they've ever had in their first 20 years. That is to say, the, the, the vast, I'm talking like over 90% of churches have their greatest days before they hit the age of 20. And so, so we as a church have to kind of make some decisions here in the next couple of years. We got to take a hard look and we can say, you know what? We got buildings, we got people, we've seen God do things, we've seen people baptized, and we can just look back at the glorious history and become spiritually puffed up. Or we as a church could say, you know what? That's nothing compared to what God wants to do. But listen, God will not do any of that if we don't continue to be a place that's ruled by love, that meets people wherever they're at on their spiritual journey and points them to Christ, that we do the things we're supposed to do because of life. We have to guard against spiritual pride. You know, there's some other things that can knock love out of your heart, love out of your life, can cause you to forsake love. That is to say that when these things become problems, love goes away. Unforgiveness. I mean, when you become a person who embraces bitterness and resentment and unforgiveness, there's not room for bitterness and resentment and love in the same heart. When you start becoming full of bitterness and unforgiveness, that's why the Bible warns so strongly against unforgiveness. That's why in the Lord's Prayer, you know that prayer Jesus gave us, he says, forgive us our debts as we forgive those debts we owe. Forgive, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sinned against us. And so, so when we see that unforgiveness can cause our love to grow cold, we need to be very wise about that. Another thing that can cause our love to grow cold is anger. It's angry. Something comes and we start giving ourselves permission to get angry. Maybe you come by angry, anger honestly. Maybe you had a parent who was angry or maybe something happened. And, and, and all of a sudden, you just find yourself getting angry. This is the season for anger, right? We got midterms coming up, right? And there are a whole lot of people, my friends, trying to convince you to get angry. They're on the news every night, and they only share bad news. The good news might make you feel better, and we're not going to have any of that, you know. And, and, and here, guard your heart during this season. Remember that we are not at war as the world war. Remember that, 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 that we are not called to make our decisions out of anger. We, we are called to make our decisions out of love. And, and here's just a, a blinding flash of the obvious, if I can just say this, because I don't hear many people saying this. Just because somebody disagrees with you politically does not mean they're a bad person. And it doesn't mean they're a bad Christian. And, and there's just the slightest chance you could be wrong. And so some humility and less anger, because we do great violence to our soul. We dry up love in our heart when we let the culture create anger. 
We can also see love drain out of heart, again, with fear and worry. We are being told to be afraid. And because I'm afraid, it makes me pull back. It makes me play safe. It can drive love out of our life. We can be love being driven out of our life with covetousness. You know what covetousness is? It's me focusing on you and what you have and wishing I had what you had. And because you have it, I, I just feel this sense of, of discontentment and, and, and it feels unfair that you have it and I don't have it. And that jealousy drives love out of our heart. How about another one here that is very common to say self-pity. That is to say something difficult has happened in your life. And maybe it was profoundly difficult, but, but you have not managed your disappointments and your pain well. And because of that, you've taken on kind of this victim status thing. And listen, when you become filled with self-pity, that is a form of selfishness. It becomes a sort of force of self-obsession. When you feel the, the poor me thing, it, it, it causes you to, to, to live small and it drives love out of your life. And so, so love is not something that just is going to come to us. Love is something that we have to choose. And so we have this word of correction followed now, look at this, by a word of warning. The word of warning is this, is that if you do not repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place. But he says, you have this in favor to you. You hate the practice of the Nicolaitans. I'm going to talk about the practice of the Nicolaitans next week. But basically what he's saying is this. Here's the word of warning. He says, if you don't figure out this thing of love, if you don't repent and turn back to your first love, the passionate love for God that overflows in a passionate love for people, if you don't become a person of love again, a church of love again, well, then you're going to cease to exist as a church. If you become all about the rules, the regulations, the liturgies, you know, the the correct doctrines, and all those things. A lot of those things are important, but if you come about all of that and you forget love, well, you're falling into the trap and the warning of Ephesus and, and the lampstand. Remember, the lampstand symbolizes the church. It's a picture of light and the spirit. And when that's pulled away, you might keep going to church services, but without the spirit of God and the one who walks along and speaks to the church, it's just a club or it's a museum or maybe a mausoleum. I don't know. But there are churches that are like that. And so we must constantly be asking ourselves, are we a place of love? He comes back with his admonition to listen. And he says, let the one who has ear, let him hear what the spirit is saying to the churches. And so what I actually want to do is I want to actually take some time right now to listen to the Spirit. So what I want to encourage you to do is just get to a place where you're kind of comfortable and close your eyes. And just take a deep breath in. Holy Spirit, Lord Jesus, we believe that you're here. And we believe that you have something to say to us as your church. And we believe you have something to say to us as individuals. Holy Spirit, speak to us. Now, what I want you to do is I just want you and your spirit to ask the Holy Spirit a couple questions. First, ask the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, what are the things that I love? What are the things I love more than you? And I want you to just ask, Holy Spirit, 
Search my heart, my mind. Is there any evidence of love there? Or has my love grown cold? Holy Spirit, show me those areas where my love has gone cold. Holy Spirit, show me those things that either have or are threatening to drive love out of my life. Spiritual pride, unforgiveness, anger, fear and worry, covetousness, self-pity. Holy Spirit, let me through your word remember again what true love is. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I'm only a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic spiritual gifts and I can fathom deep mysteries and I have all kinds of knowledge, and if I have faith that's so strong I can move mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Because love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud and it is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrong. It forgives. Love doesn't delight in evil. Bad things happening to people but it rejoices when the truth comes out. It always protects, it always trusts, it's hopeful and perseveres. Indeed, love never fails. Right now, we we only know a little bit of that, part of that. And someday we'll know it fully, even as you know us fully. But now we know three things remain, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, help us to be honest. Has our love grown cold? Have we forsaken our first love? Do we need to return to those things we did at first? Perhaps when our faith was new and we were so overwhelmed with the love of Jesus. Father God, I I just pray that you will lead us to return to our first love. In Jesus' name. This section ends the way all the sections end with a promise of reward for those who overcome. Look what it says in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 7. He says, To the one who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. That's a reference back to the original story of the Bible, the very beginning. The man and the woman lived with God. They walked with God in a perfect love relationship. Because they had access to this tree, they had access to life. And when they got put outside of the paradise of God, they were cut off from that. This is a promise for eternal life. This is a promise to be with God forever. It's a promise that blows our mind, that that we are called to an eternal destiny with Christ. Um, You know, the ultimate example of love is Christ, right? It's Jesus, um, who talked a lot about love, and he made love the number one evidence of whether or not we're really his followers. He he said, hey, I give you a new commandment. He said, love one another. 
He said, by this, people will know that you really belong to me, that you've memorized a lot of Bible facts. Oh, no. That you win arguments. No. That you know you have great, perfect theology. By the way, no one has great, perfect theology. You're wrong about something, right? A little humility. He says, by this, people will know you're my disciples by your love for one another. And that was Ephesus. It was the church. No, and Paul said, I heard about your love and your faith. Since that time, I've just been so thankful for you. And so for us as individuals and for us as a church, for us to come back and say, okay, is this a church that's dedicated to this proposition of love? We're going to meet people wherever they're in their journey. We're going to be patient with them. We're going to be kind to them. We're going to speak the truth to them. We're going to do it in love. We're going to teach forgiveness in this place. We're going to seek to empower people and help them become more like Christ. When we come that place, it becomes the most amazing thing. Well, the example of that, of course, is Jesus, you know, who hung on the cross. It's been said they didn't need nails because his love would have held him there. And, and the songs say such things. And, and it's because the Bible says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish of everlasting night. On the night before he died, Jesus gathered up his disciples, right? And he said to them, you know, here's the deal. Um, I'm going away and you can't go with me right now, but I'm preparing a place. So I'm going to come get with you. But I'm going to give you this, this memorial supper to remember. And what I want you to remember is me. I want you to remember who I was and, and what I taught you. And, and I want you to remember the example and, and the sacrifice that I'm going to be tomorrow because the very next day he's going, to, he's going to die on the cross. He said in one of the Gospels, I've eagerly desired to share this with you. And I believe Christ is here today to share this with us. He walks among us. He says, so when you take this, I want you to take some bread and I want you to remember that that bread symbolizes my body, my body that was broken for you for love's sake. So you, I became broken so you could be whole. And I did that because of love. And, and he said, then I want you to take this cup. And I want you to understand that this cup is, is a new relationship. He says, a new covenant. And, and because of my blood being shed and your sins being forgiven, you can have a relationship with me and, and, and you can have a relationship with the Father. And, and so, so in love, I, I give you this cup. And when you take this bread and you drink this cup, you're supposed to remember me. And if you remember anything about Jesus, you've got to remember the love. You gotta remember that everything he did was for love's sake. And how easy it would have been for Jesus' love to grow cold, right? I mean, do you think he had any opportunities to get angry? Think he had any opportunities, you know, to be afraid? To just say, you know, this is so not worth it. People haven't deserved it. You know, any of them. But instead, love endured. And, and, and in love, he becomes our example. And so it seemed wonderfully appropriate tonight that that we should have communion together. And as we, we take communion and, and, and we receive the, the cup and the bread, I want you to come in a spirit of asking God, God, in what way has my love grown cold? Maybe it's gone specific in your life. Maybe, you know, there's some evidence, you know, I got love in this area, but, but maybe in your marriage, you've let love grow cold. Maybe as a student towards your parents, you've let your love grow cold. Maybe uh, in, in a work environment or over all this political mess that we, we get so, so invested in, you know, maybe all of that causes our love to grow cold. And, and so this weekend, as you take communion, say, Father, bring me back to my first love. And I want to intentionally choose to approach my relationships, my life, being full 
of the love that you demonstrated. Now here at Jacob's Well, we don't have a lot of rules about communion because we believe that what we're doing here is a symbolic memorial. It reminds us of something that happened 2,000 years ago. And for those of you maybe who are new here don't know, what happened 2,000 years ago is this person, Jesus Christ, who we've been talking about, he, he picked up a cross and he carried that cross. And on that cross, he was nailed to that cross. He was nailed there for your sins and for my sins. And when we put our faith and trust in what he did for us on that cross, and, and our sins are forgiven. And so we're remembering that act of love that he did, that he lived, that he died, and then three days later, he rose from the dead. And so if you're here today and you believe that Jesus really lived, he, he really died on the cross for our sins, and he rose from the dead, no matter where you're at or where you're from, we welcome you to come to communion. The ushers will come forward and they'll dismiss us for communion and um, um, you can just follow their lead. If you have a gluten allergy, we have a gluten-free table over here and you just go over there. We want everyone to be able to prepare uh, uh, participate in communion. We're very careful about how we prepare that and, and, and all of us here as we come, we want to come in that spirit um, of rediscovering our first love. Let's, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I know how easy it is to just go through the motions of the Christian life. I know how easy it is to become spiritually puffed up or to embrace unforgiveness or anger or fear, those things that drive love out of our life. But as fathers, we return to communion again and we remember your son, would you remind us that we are called to be people of love? We are called to be people who don't let our love grow cold, who don't become hard and legalistic and unforgiving, but instead we become people who are softened once again by your love. Teach us to be patient and kind, to forgive, to keep no record of wrongs. Teach us to be be people of love as we take communion together. I thank you, and we thank you so much for your love in Jesus' name. Amen. The ushers can come forward and prepare communion. As they do, once again, I just want to let you know that um, um, the ushers will dismiss you, and as they do, um, you can come forward and receive communion.